Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. We're here today to talk about something that is getting harder to avoid this election year. Race, specifically whiteness, and how racial grievance of all kinds seems to be more present than ever in our politics. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And we have a special guest today, someone who's launching his own podcast later this month, our dear friend, Gene, say hi and who you are. What's good? I'm Gene Demby. I'm the lead correspondent for Code Switch. Uh, we are a team dedicated to covering race, ethnicity, and culture. And you're going to be co-hosting the new Code Switch podcast, which launches what, like May 31st? Subscribe on iTunes. Oh, yeah. It's going to be great. Welcome, yeah. Gene. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So we could play a lot of Trump tape to begin this discussion, but uh, let's just stick with the big three all about Trump and race. Uh, here they are. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. We are going to make America so great again, maybe greater than ever before. I love you all. Thank you, New Hampshire. There's clearly a lot to unpack here about race and what America means and is and who it's for and what this greatness means. But, Gene, the heart of this discussion today grows out of a piece that you wrote recently uh, about this kind of thing. It's called, quote, it's gotten a lot harder to act like whiteness doesn't shape our politics. Right. For those who haven't read it yet, uh, give us a little refresher of what you're talking about in that piece. So it's really hard for us in American life to talk about whiteness as a sort of discrete, distinct thing. Um, we talk about identity politics all the time when it comes to black voters and Latino voters. But there's something happening with white voters right now that is really important that we like sort of say it as the thing that we say it on the top line and not sort of use euphemisms about. Right. I mean, we uh, we know that like nine in 10 Republicans are white. Right. We know that the Trump coalition is made up of all sorts of different kinds of white people. Right. Who don't necessarily have a lot of ideological through lines. And right? so you talked about how the idea is whiteness as a construct, as a thing. We don't talk about it enough or at all in some cases. Right. That's right. And we use a lot of euphemisms for white voters. Right. We have hardworking Americans. Right. We have middle America. Right. Uh, we have working class. That is a that's sort of a coded word. Right. But that's not even true. Right. I mean, we know that Jamal Bowie of Slate has been talking about this like on like incessantly for the last few weeks. The working class is actually like 40 percent people of color, mostly black and Latino at this yeah. point. Um, but when you say working class voters, you know that you mean white. people. You mean white people. Yeah. Why do we do that when we're so comfortable with saying black voters and Latino voters and Asian voters and Muslim voters? So on, there is a part of this is tr that sort of is worth like sort of acknowledging that like black voters do vote Democrat. Right. Like I think the, the uh, overwhelmingly overwhelmingly. Right. Like I think nine and ten black more voters, than 90 percent. Yeah. yeah consistently. Right. Um, and white voters have been sort of a little bit less predictive that way. Uh, but. The thing that is also true about the Republican coalition and that is entirely is not entirely white, but it's almost entirely white at this point. You know, let's talk about some of the rhetoric this campaign season. Um, there's some data that suggests that Donald Trump is appealing to a sense of white racial resentment in some of his messaging. Asma, you've seen some data that speaks I have. to that. Yeah, there's a couple of political scientists who have looked at data from the American National Election Studies 2016 pilot study. And in there, they kind of had the 
these thermometer rankings where groups could sort of rank how they felt in terms of warmth or not as warmth uh, towards a particular group. And it was interesting because the common thread that one of these political scientists noticed was that Trump supporters seemed to have cooler feelings, you could say, towards hmm. many groups, towards African-Americans, Hispanics, Muslims, um, transgender folks. Well, what kind of question gets at that? Yeah. So there was a couple of things that I saw. I mean, one thing that was looked at is this idea that whites who think it's extremely likely that, quote, many whites are unable to find a job because employers are hiring minorities instead, end quotes. People who agreed with that statement were over 50 points more likely to support Trump than folks who think it's unlikely that whites are necessarily losing their jobs to minorities. The other thing I think is interesting, you know, there was a poll out uh, from Morning Consult, which is an online poll. I don't generally love online polls, but they have a huge sample on this question. They asked people, um, when was America great? (laughs) And it, it was really an interesting chart that wound up coming out of it because almost everybody said... 2000. So that was, you know, a pretty good economic time. So both parties Y2K, agreed on that. We had survived it. <laughs> survived Y2K, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Y2K. Um, Taking back. But Republicans said the late 1950s and the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president. The late 1950s, hmm. it's hard not to see that as as having an underpinning of race. I mean, the late 1950s were just before all of the civil rights movement. uh, And the women's rights movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, you know, civil rights legislation that went through uh, women having, certainly, I mean, in the 1960s and 70s, women uh, making a stronger push. That is something, when you talk about the culture wars, that a lot of white voters who felt like they were coming out of World War II, creating families, living a calm suburban life. Suddenly the 60s disrupted all of that. And you had a split among a lot of white voters where you had some who, you know, became more liberal and you had others who became more traditionalist. And it's really interesting that you're seeing it sort of take hold now with a presidential candidate like Donald Trump. But you're seeing such a racially polarized electorate, right? And I, I guess my question is, I mean, is that not just dangerous for the long run. Like I was looking at old exit polls from 2008. So this was when Barack Obama was running. We were looking at Georgia. And in Georgia, 78% of white men voted for McCain that year. 98% of black people supported President Obama. I mean, that is an extreme polarization along racial lines. And Obama lost the state by five. And a lot of people would say, oh, look at that, a competitive state. But really, it's just very segmented, polarized within the state. And I just wonder, like, even if you do not want more immigrants in the country, even if you support the idea of building a wall, if you build a wall tomorrow... The, the underage five population is already majority minority. And that's so you could close the, the, the borders tomorrow. I'm sorry. Just to clarify that figure, you're saying all of the children here in America under five years old, they are it's already majority minority. It's flipped majority minority. Huh. You cannot go back from the numbers at this point. You know, we cannot have a conversation about racial coding and messaging and politics without talking about our current president. Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, he has been talking about and living and occupying race 
for eight years plus now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this now famous race speech he gave in 08. Domenico, take us back to that place. Well, he needed that race speech to be able to save his campaign. And, and this was during the campaign was, after... During the campaign while on loop on cable, uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, his pastor, Jeremiah Wright's... Former uh, pastor. Well, at that time, <laughs> yeah. it was his pastor. Sure. Uh, you know, his incendiary comments about the country playing on loop on cable news. I mean, every and day. And there was that one phrase of him saying over and over and over, God. Damn, America. America, and that your right? chickens are coming home to yes. roost, and all that stuff, and it threatened his entire candidacy because he'd become racialized. And what was really interesting was not the stuff about Jeremiah Wright, frankly. I mean, he attacked that, but then he stepped back and he elevated to talk about the state of race in the country, which was a really kind of profound uh, way to talk about because he kind of predicted a lot of what actually came in this campaign. Yeah, I think we have some tape of that. Most working and middle class white Americans don't feel that they've been particularly privileged by their race. Their experience is the immigrant experience. As far as they're concerned, no one handed them anything. They've built it from scratch. They've worked hard all their lives, many times only to see their jobs shipped overseas or their pensions dumped after a lifetime of labor. They are anxious about their futures, and they feel their dreams slipping away. And in an era of stagnant wages and global competition, Opportunity comes to be seen as a zero-sum game in which your dreams come at my expense. And then he goes on to really talk through white anger versus black anger. He equates the two and talks about the problems in in the, the anger and resentment within each race. And just as black anger often proved counterproductive, so have these white resentments distracted attention from the real culprits of the middle class squeeze, a corporate culture rife with inside dealing, questionable accounting practices, and short-term greed, a Washington dominated by lobbyists and special interests, economic policies that favor the few over the many. And yet to wish away the resentments of white Americans, to label them as misguided or even racist, without recognizing they are grounded in legitimate concerns, this too widens the racial divide. What I found fascinating about that clip and why I really thought it was interesting is he basically predicted everything that was going to come in this campaign, starting with Donald Trump playing on white resentment, even Bernie Sanders in that very last paragraph saying that yeah. your white resentment is is the wrong resentment. It's about stagnant wages and corporate mm-hmm. greed. Yeah. You know, so he was able to put all of those things together and his whole premise of his candidacy, remember 2004, that speech was, there's no red America, blue America, there's United States of America. Like, that was what his candidacy was premised on and then got into the D.C. grinder, and this is what got yeah. spit out. Uh, so I have another question for all of us journalists here right now. Um, as reporters covering this campaign and this election, how do we talk about race in a fair and thorough and deliberate way without ending up like so much of what I see online where every Trump voter is racist and every X voter wants this and every YZ voter is that. Like, how do we get to some smart, nuanced conversation about whiteness and race and the election without dividing into tribes? 
Well, I like how you look at me because I'm the political editor. So <laughs> thanks for that. Uh, it's not an easy question, right, to answer. But I think what you've found, Sam and Asma, you can uh, uh, you know talk to this as well. When you go out on the campaign trail, a lot of this stuff we talk about at a 30,000-foot level doesn't necessarily play out the exact way you think it will with voters when you finally talk to them. I am constantly surprised by how many voters on a regular basis confound my ideas about what voters think and want because of who they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every week I'm I, every week I'm proven wrong. And I mean, you know, I also think when talking about how to get at race without these discussions of groups as monolith, those kind of conversations also hurt white people. Like I can tell you one thing that I'm tired of, like these listicle, funny, joking articles that kind of say, for instance, the 27 most annoying things about privileged white guys or like here's why white girls are basic 12 reasons like those kind of conversations don't help either 37 flat front khakis that your dad might like exactly (laughs) and so like we end up in this weird space where it's still okay to joke about white people in this monolithic way that is dismissive of them and their diversity like well that's because we don't again we, we don't have the languages about white people yeah. so like uh, Nell Evan Painter has this great line in this op-ed she wrote in the New York Times like sort of the, the, the difficulty with talking about white identity is that whiteness is usually just like we consider it either sort of racism or on the, on the other side just bland nothingness right yeah. like it's just like emptiness right and so um, I think again like speaking to that stuff much more specifically like whiteness as a like as a sort of as a racial identity but also political identity gets you closer to a place where you're not talking about something that is just sort of without feature yeah and I mean this is this idea that I think about all the time like finding that gray space going there living it sounded there, like Obama that. was trying to get there in that speech, yeah. right? And that's think, what I think is so interesting is it's like if you listen to the language he was using there in Philadelphia, like that is precisely where he was going. Yeah. yeah. Precisely, yeah. like we should recognize where each other comes from. I think the one difficulty in saying that we should talk about whiteness means that then it sounds flat. Like it sounds like it's all one thing. Um, so I think that for some listeners, they might hear that and think, okay, there's just, that's the stereotype. See, but then. if I heard someone say, let's talk about blackness, I would assume we were going to have a talk a deta- about the, a the gradations uh-huh. of it, uh-huh. you know? Right. And I, I think know. that's right. I mean, we talk about, white, we, I think when I mean we talk about whiteness, I mean, let's let's actually talk about like what falls under, unpack under, under that umbrella those. and let's sort of deconstruct it. But it is it. interesting because the more and more I think we have conversations around identity, and Gene, I'm sure you probably have a sense of this, I, I'm a Dominican, I don't know that that really resonates a lot of times with both listeners and readers, you know, that like I'll do a story on how Asian-American voters are tilting more Democrat this election cycle and people will comment and say national identity radio. You know, it's sort right, of like I right. think you almost lose people when you are trying to talk about issues. The around problem culture is, but, the, but white people don't are not discussed as like people who are motivated by identity politics, which right. obviously this election sort of like disproves. That, thoroughly, is, right? that and is so true. When it, yeah. if we look at it, if you say, oh, look, at the Asian-American vote is sort of swinging to the Democratic side. People say that is there is some sort of there is a demographic uh uh, there's some sort of demographic shift happening. Mm-hmm. Let's also talk about the way that Hillary Clinton seems to be speaking to and about race. Uh, a lot of times in her stump speeches now, she'll talk about some of the social programs that, um, that she's in favor of and the things she wants to do. And she says that she wants to break down all the barriers holding Americans back. Uh, Domenico, you argue that that break down the barriers comment is, is racially coded? Yeah, I mean, part Explain of it, how. part of it, you know, has to do with gender. But... 
It's no mistake that before the contest moved into the South, that her campaign did this, talking specifically about non-white voters to yes. try to get them I mean, out. Look at the ads she ran in South Carolina, right? I mean, they were ads that had, um, oh, my God, who was it, that guy who did the voice, the magnificent voice in her Morgan ad? Morgan Freeman. Her church taught her to do all the good you can for all the people you can. For as long as you can. Yeah, right. Yeah. Morgan Freeman. Oh, that ad was so high drama. Yeah. It's just, man. <laughs> and, and you see Hillary Clinton surrounded by all these African-American voters. I mean, the Democrats have, in a very conscious way, courted African-American voters and courted Latino voters. I mean, I think there is something to be said. And I think I read this in a New York Times piece a little while back about a white guy who was interviewed in Ohio, um, who had traditionally been a Democrat, um, a union member, saying, you know, who's talking to us in the Democratic Party? And I think there's some truth to that. And I mean, we've the gotten Democrats some mail made... from listeners about that, too, basically saying, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, when she, she is not specifically singling out the problems, at least in their eyes, of working class white voters. And Even Trump though she does try to talk that. about child care and yes. family leave. Yeah. And but those Bernie Sanders has about. made that very critique. I mean, I would say are against her throughout this primary season, right? Bernie Sanders has made this point that we as a Democratic Party need to sort of engage with working class voters, working class white voters being and a part And his coalition of looks really different, right? His coalition <laughs> is like, I mean, the, I mean, I don't want to use this. Young sort of and white. It's young white folks, right? And so th- there's a reason sort of why um, originally Bernie Sanders sort of posited his argument like in class a class argument, right? And the and the argument, the pushback from like BLM folks, Black Lives Matter folks was like, you can't sort of talk about sort of class issues and not talk about the intersection of race, right? But Bernie Sanders folks were at first were really, really like clumsy with that stuff. Oh, yeah. And there's a reason why their coalitions look the way. Now, they Hillary, Hillary Clinton had some trouble talking about race, too. I mean, she, going to she, Ferguson she, in yeah. 2015. She said all lives matter. All lives yeah. matter. Yeah. You know, but one of the things that I want to talk about briefly with the Bernie Sanders coalition of these younger white voters and I guess working class white voters, I have heard the critique from lots of people of color that a lot of the problems that the Bernie Sanders coalition raises, three things specifically, um, it's harder and harder to afford college. Mm -hmm. It's harder and harder to afford a home or to make a good wage. And more and more people in your family or social circles have been touched by drugs Mm -hmm. uh, like opioids. Those are three problems that people of color said that they've been dealing with for decades now. Right. And there is this sense that a lot of white voters and a lot of white people post-recession are seeing a lot of the hardships that have been reality for other yeah. parts of America well, for a while. In fairness, uh, on the, the split between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, on this, Hillary Clinton talked about the opioid stuff before Bernie oh, Sanders yeah. did. But that was while she was campaigning in a white state sure. in New Hampshire. Yeah. And she's picking up on it. She's hearing about that. Bernie Sanders, you know, the, the racial split, what's, what's tough about that for him is that he thought his message that you're talking about on, on economic Incoming, inequality yeah. and uh, you know the ability to afford college and things like that would eventually appeal to black voters. Now, what we've known for a long time is that black voters are very pragmatic. They want yes. to vote for a winner. Oh, yes. And they're also pretty loyal. I mean, they knew the Clintons for a long time and they had initially backed Hillary Clinton pretty strongly in 2008 until they saw that white voters in Iowa would vote for Barack Obama and they thought, oh, he could win. So then they switched and went to Obama and felt like it was okay to do that. Right. This time around, they're coming back and saying, look, we've had this bond with her for a long time. We don't think Bernie Sanders' ideas can really work. Also stayed... part of the Obama administration. She was part of the Obama that's administration. That's right. And, Obama and, and exactly. Yes. I want to so, make a really quick point yes, about yes, you, you mentioned the opioid epidemic. And I think that's a really important, like, illustrative, like, uh, issue in this campaign. So 
on one hand, everyone is speaking to it, right? Everyone, like, everyone. This is a specific demographic problem that the, uh, that poor white folks are dealing with, And they're right? speaking about it very compassionately. Or sometimes right. so, rich this, suburban white folks so, as well. So the Boston. two things sit against each other. This is, we don't, we have like really sort of incomplete language to talk about white people, right? And so talking about like white people problems is like a loaded and messy thing, right? But this is a problem that is, uh, is increasingly affecting white folks. At the same time, the reason we are talking about this like in a public health context and not a criminal justice context is because the people who are affected by white people. Because and those things are... Those things are both true, right? Yes. That whiteness grants a bunch of sort of credibility and credulousness to the problems that you have. And you're comparing this to the crack... A crack epidemic of the 90s, yes. right, exactly. But and those you... things are both true. And we sort of have to wrestle, wrestle with the idea that we need better language to talk about these problems. So then, Gene, if we see eight years post-Obama, we're still as divided racially or even more so, what will it take to have a conversation that veers to a bit more unity? Like, is it an issue? I mean, like, <laughs> like, does talking about whiteness more candidly help in that regard? Does talking about some of these resentments more openly help in that regard? So I appreciate you giving me the easy question. Yeah. Solve <laughs> um, uh, it all, Gene. I know. Um, I mean, obviously, um, talking about whiteness as a discrete thing matters a great deal. But to some extent, these divisions are so deeply embedded in our society. And not just, like, like in terms of ideology, I mean, we don't live near each other, right? We are deeply racially segregated, right? I mean, there was a big Supreme Court case this week, or a small Supreme Court case, but that was about gerrymandering, right, in Virginia. Um, like, those things have tremendous sort of consequences for the way people live their daily lives, but have they have... Just they're just as consequential for the way people vote, right, and the sort of partisan alignment of our country. And so... Um, a lot of these conversations, whether we're talking about sort of structural discrimination and inequality or we're talking about just like partisanship, are not really separate conversations at all. Right. Um, and so we need to sort of have them like we need to have a much more sophisticated version of that conversation. But we also need to talk about white people as white people and stop making whiteness invisible. Right. And, and start talking about it as as what it is. Right. And also understand that not all white people are the same. You know, absolutely there are right. cleavages in those groups and divisions in those That's groups right. and varying levels of privilege within that group. But right? when we start talking about it with that kind of specificity, then we can, like, talking about whiteness is just sort of, without calling it whiteness, does not allow us to sort of now, drill down there, into the details. I mean, but there's a reason why you used to split up white voters, uh, you know, between all these varying groups that we're used to talking about. I mean, hearing about evangelicals or you hear about white working class or whatever is because for a long time... They were the overwhelming they majority. They were the overwhelming right. majority in the country. Sure. And the non-white vote didn't have the same kind of impact that it's starting to now. All right, we got to wrap it up. Uh, so many thanks to Thank you for having our, me. This our, our play so cousin Jean being here. Thank thanks you. for coming by. Thank loved you. it. Loved Let's it, do it again. Loved it. Yeah. So you guys have heard a plug or two on the show before, but now that you've heard him for yourself, please go check out Gene Demby on the new NPR Code Switch podcast. It is not to be missed. The trailer is out now. The first episode comes out a week from today. Uh, we'll see you all back here with our weekly roundup on Thursday. As always, catch more of our coverage on your local public radio station and email this show at nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. Domenico Montanaro, political editor. You oh, too. Don't make sure. Okay, I count. Uh, I'm Gene Demby, lead correspondent for Code Switch. All right. Thank you all for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.